Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity, and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Sydney, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. This episode's conversation is about the neuroscience of leadership and performance. The latest neuroscience research has created a framework called NeuroTread, which addresses how to think, regulate, engage, adapt and develop with the brain in mind. How do these five factors work together and how do we get our brain to focus and work efficiently to be a great leader? Let's ask Kristen Hansen, founder of Enhanson Performance. Kristen helps managers build leadership, resilience, adaptability, creativity, coaching, self-management, and engagement skills. She draws from her postgraduate studies in neuroscience of leadership and 20 years of management roles with major Australian organizations. The Neuroscience of Leadership and Performance, a Florence Guild conversation with Kristen Hansen. Hi, everyone. How are you all? I'm probably going to do a mix of sitting and standing. I've got my brain here, my trusty brain here. Who else in the room is lucky enough to walk around with a spare brain? That would be quite handy, I think, generally. We're really into AI and everything these days, but wouldn't it be cool if we could just sort of say, I need a new brain? (laughs) That would be excellent. But anyway, what I'd love to talk to you about, something I'm very passionate about, is how do we get the very best out of our brains and how do we get the best out of other people's brains? the NeuroTread framework that Cami mentioned is what we work with all our organisations um, drawing from. Uh, as she said, it stands for how to think, regulate, engage, adapt and develop with the brain in mind, adding traction to leadership and personal development because it's underpinned by science. So we're drawing from the field of neuroleadership. Has anybody experienced anything from the field of neuroscience, neuroleadership yet? So what I'm going to talk you through is just a couple of highlights, one or two highlights from each of the different areas. Um, When it comes to what we're covering today, we run everything from one-hour keynotes, three-hour keynotes, two-day workshops, all the way up to nine-month programs. So I'm obviously just going to draw on a tiny little snippet of stuff. But the key things I'd love to highlight are some of the things that I think help us make better decisions, help us regulate our emotions, help us influence others, help us change our brain and develop new high-performance habits, and how do we have conversations with others that help them develop uh, more effectively. So without further into the detail of all the background, I'm just going to start explaining a little bit about the brain. The first thing is the field of neuroleadership has really exploded in the last 10 years because of functional magnetic resonance imaging technology. And that's enabled people to see blood flow in real time and been able to uh, enabled um, neuroscientists to say, oh, this part of the brain's used for this, this part of the brain's used for that. And what happens when we do this? What happens to the rest of the brain? So from that technology, they've been able to understand that this part of the, at the very front of the brain is the prefrontal cortex. Not that they didn't know that, but just that some of the interactions have been more prevalent in the last 10 to 15 years because of this technology. The prefrontal cortex is responsible for your executive functions. You guys all look like executives. What do you do with your prefrontal cortex then? 
plan, we analyse, we understand things, we recall things from our long-term memory centre, uh, we inhibit, so we stop ourselves doing things. Well, that's the plan anyway. So our prefrontal cortex stops us from calling someone a beep when it's not politically correct to do so. Sometimes people say, ah, oh, that's my problem, I'm missing a prefrontal cortex. But anyway, the point is the prefrontal cortex, known as our executive functions, or our thinking brain or our conscious brain, is what we walk around all day, every day, thinking of ourselves as a human being. This is what we're very conscious of, it's our working memory, but it does sort of tend to run out of gas a little bit. We've got four peak hours of prefrontal cortex activity every day. Many people have those four in the morning. About 70% of mid to older people have 70, um, best four hours in the morning. About 20% in the afternoon, 10% in the morning. So let's get a show of hands here. Who has their best four hours already done? <laughs> and I get sloppy seconds. Great, thanks very much. And who has um, the best four hours about to start? Afternoon brains, great, thank you, welcome. I'll hang out with you guys then. And who um, is not gonna be with us uh, in their finest form until the evening? Yeah, so there you go, 70, 20, 10. So generally speaking, we do have four best hours and the rest of them, we're sort of at mid-level to lower level performance. So it's important for you as an individual to know what are some of the things I need to be doing with my best four hours. Because if you're a morning person and you've got back-to-back -back meetings and you're giving yourself what's left over in the afternoon to do some strategy or thinking, maybe you're not getting the very best out of your brain. So some of the things we do, first of all, is look at how do we get the best out of my own brain? How do I know how it operates? And then we need to think about our team members and consider Who's in my team and what do they need and where's their brain operating in the best way? If I'm going to have a one-on-one -on -one with somebody, obviously it's not great to have a one-on-one -on -one with a morning person at two or three in the afternoon when they're not at their peak. Anyway, prefrontal cortex, that's the first part of the brain that I wanted to explain. The second part is the amygdala and the amygdala is part of the limbic system. The amygdala is responsible for the three Fs, fight, flight, and there's another one. Freeze, yeah, and some neuroscientists say the five Fs, fight, flight, freeze, feast, and make love, but we'll just stick with the three for now. All right, that was not the right word, never mind, no, it doesn't matter, I understand your brain just went there, it was fornicate, but that's close. Anyway, so the fight, flight, freeze response we have is for our survival. Now, what's interesting about the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala is the inverse relationship that occurs when it comes to blood flow. Blood flow is the fuel for the prefrontal cortex. We work mentally because there's blood here. When the amygdala scans the environment non-stop five times a second for whether something's a threat or a reward, an email can represent a threat. Many emails do represent threats. In fact, the sheer number of them represent the main threat. But let's say we receive an email, we go, oh, I forgot to do something, or I've got a deadline, uh, really tight for time, etc." In that moment, the blood flows away from the prefrontal cortex via the amygdala and heads south to our heart, lung, limbs for the fight, flight, freeze response. It's called an amygdala hijack. It's where the amygdala has essentially taken over the activity of the brain to, to ensure that we survive, but it sometimes can mean that we're not thinking straight when we're in that threat state. Has anybody experienced that? Where you feel like, ah, I can't think straight. So we do call that an amygdala hijack. Now your amygdala, part of the brain, it's just two small little critters either side of your brain, very small, so named because it looks like almonds, after the Greek word for almonds, is very sensitive because its aim is to ensure that you survive. So 
every experience that you have in the world, every sound that we hear of feet walking, um, the, the fridge making a hum, etc. The brain is taking everything in, everything visually. Um, if somebody's smiling or frowning, it's taking all of that in, trying to assess whether we minimise, we need to minimise danger and maximise reward. The more that we see a threat in our environment, an email, somebody uh, wanting a deadline or, or us not doing something or not enjoying something, etc., the more we see it as a threat, the more our amygdala gets... Uh, activated and the more it grows. So we need to recognise that we can be growing our own amygdala sometimes by just panicking or being frustrated or walking around like Muttley sometimes. You know, you're having a bad day and underneath you're going, you know, I'm really stressed or whatever. Now if that's happening for you, just know that every conversation you're having, every single thought you have leaves a material trace in your brain. So sometimes you are activating the threat response for more than you need to. When you activate the threat response, what physically happens is you get a narrower peripheral vision. You become more risk averse, you have less insights, you're less connected and you're problems oriented. Whereas when you're in a threat state, reward state, sorry, not a threat state, when you're feeling more open or curious or interested versus frustrated, nervous, worried, anxious, concerned. When you're in this reward state, you are more open to risk. You have a broader view, broader peripheral vision physically. You have more insights, you're more connected and your solutions oriented. So we need to think, okay, I need to be in a reward state in order to be in peak performance, not a threat state, and so do my team. Yet, we're pretty busy, we're overrun with, as we say, emails and deadlines and everything. It's very difficult for us always to be in a reward state these days. But great leadership is about creating that self positive, positive self and that self, uh, the environment of positive for others. So it's one of the first things that we think about is what are we doing to create more reward, a sense of reward in our brain and a sense of reward for others amongst the threat. Um, one of the first sort of key principles, I guess, of leading with the brain in mind. Um, just about the amygdala, I just wanted to mention that, you know, as I said, when you experience a threat, the more you experience a threat, your amygdala does grow. So um, post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, is an enlarged amygdala. And you all know somebody probably who, you know, you might say, oh, good morning, and they say, what do you mean? You go, well, just good morning. Next time you can say, you know, you have a very enlarged amygdala. Um, and No, I don't, what's that? And you can say, see, it's an enlarged amygdala, you're responding negatively. Obviously, you wouldn't really say that. But essentially, that is what is happening. And obviously, yes, we can shrink it um, by doing um, behavioural therapy and positive positivity and waking up every day and gratitude diaries and all of that, just feeling more calm, mindfulness practice, all of these things make us uh, regulate our emotions much more effectively, which is what we're going to look at next. But I also thought it would be worth mentioning just as a little side note and interesting about the amygdala is, you know, children who were fetuses at the time of the World Trade Center collapse in New York have 25% larger amygdalas. So for those of you who are, you know, um, thinking of having children or having children or what have you, it, they're very susceptible, the brain is very susceptible to what's actually going on around you and, and obviously in particular for the female at the time. 
So that's the first thing. So if we were to be mindful of regulating our emotions, um, being able to make sure we're in a reward state rather than a threat state, what sorts of things do you think you can do to get yourself out of threat and back into reward quickly? What would you do? Yeah. Breathe. Breathe is the first one. Yep. What else can you do? Yeah. Change your pattern of behaviour. Change your pattern. Yep. Great change your pattern of behaviour response. We're going to look at how we actually do that. So we have a little summary, um, I guess, strategy that works quite well and it's called Breathe, Label, Reappraise. Blah, we call it BLR, blah. When you're in a threat state, just blah. Do not collect 200, do not pass go, do not collect $200, just blah first. Don't answer somebody in an email. Don't respond to somebody physically, etc. Just blah first. So breathe deeply. Six breaths per minute is only three breaths in 30 seconds. So it's a 30-second circuit breaker. Three of them, three really deep breaths. Label the emotion. Give it a name. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling nervous. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling, not all of them, just pick one. And then reappraise, which is what you suggested, which is what can I, how can I be thankful about this? Or what can I be grateful for here? Or what have I learned? Or how do I put this into perspective? Any of those questions just help us calm ourselves or shift our, our thinking to be a little bit more toward the positive and that can make a big difference. Now, all of us do that, but the question is, do we do it within 30 seconds? Because hanging out in threat for an hour or two is going to you know, limit your decision-making capabilities, reduce your amount of insights, etc., etc. So it's just useful to be thinking straight away when you're in a threat, this is not a productive th state for me. How do I shift into a reward state? How do I do it quickly? So one of the first things we state is obviously it's really important to know that blah exists, yeah, but no one's going to use it if you're in a threat state tomorrow. You won't remember this. So you have to make it a habit. In order to create a habit, you need to be able to put, we're going to cover that last as well, but you need to put some reminders in your phone or wherever you can to blah, and you blah two or three times a day at any point. It could be every time you're in a lift, you blah. Every time you're on an escalator, you blah. You use certain triggers for yourself to do it anyway, regardless of whether you need to reset, because then when you do need to reset, it will come to mind. Does that make sense? So you can't wait. You've got to create the habit of doing it regularly. It's a very good habit to be in anyway, to breathe deeply, label, which is essentially emotional intelligence, just label, how are you feeling right now? And if you need to shift it, what do you need to shift it to? To be a more productive, in a much more productive space, I need to feel that this is doable or that this little setback is not as bad as it could be or I need to be able to have learnt from this setback and got, know that it won't happen again and therefore I will benefit, etc. So great question. We blah. Um, we need to create the habit to blah. Thank you. So I want to turn our attention to insights as part of decision making. What is an insight? If I say insight, what comes to mind for you guys? A light bulb moment, right? This is our beautiful insight. We'll just have a look at this one here. An aha moment or the sudden realisation of a complicated situation, right? An insight is something that is at, this, at the heart of all creativity, empowerment, innovation and motivation. So we want to be able to have as many insights, would you agree, as possible? Would you think if you could triple or quadruple the amount of insights you had per day, would you sign up for that? Yeah. 
So let's understand how insights happen because insights are a big part of problem solving. We either solve our problems with our logical prefrontal cortex, which is actually our conscious brain and a very small processing capacity, the prefrontal cortex, or we solve it via insight, which is actually via our non-conscious processing um, and our more complex system of solving problems. How do we know a bit more about insights? Well, let's have a look at where are you when you have insights. You have seven guesses to get the top five places where you are when you have insights. Where are you? Shower, toilet, exercise, in bed, traveling. What do all of those things have in common from a brain state perspective? Where are you? What are you doing? What's your brain doing when you're in those places? Why are you having insights? Brain state is relaxed, right? So if we think of innovative thinking and we want people to have insights, how many of you are managers of others? Quite a few, yeah. So the good news is now you know how to have insights. Next time you're with someone, you can say, well, you've got some choices. You can either come to bed with me, come to the loo, have a shower, etc." <laughs> so we have the solution to the problems. This is how we become more innovative. You walk away from here and say, all I need to do now is sleep with my staff and they'll have more insights. This is good. I spent a good hour working out how to be more productive. Okay. Obviously, we can't do that. We do need to understand, though, a little bit about that brain state and how we can help others have insights. First of all, we need to recognise when you have a very busy brain, you're less likely to be creative, okay? You're less likely to have those aha moments. I don't mean brainstorming isn't a creative process, but if you want to have insights, you need to have a quiet brain. Sometimes when people come to you with a dilemma and they go, oh, I don't know how to solve this, they're in a threat state. Would you agree? And we ask them 10 questions about the problem. Who's involved? What did it do? How much will it cost us? Da, 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 so that we can solve the problem. That's not helping someone have an insight. That's be basically being a manager, not a leader, obviously. So this is where we then say to somebody, well, what you should do is X, Y, Z. We are stopping them having an insight. Now, the best thing about an insight is that you get a dopamine hit when you have an insight. Same neurochemical that's released when you have cocaine. Anybody had cocaine instead this morning? No. <laughs> Some of you may have had an insight though in the shower. What we want to be able to do is help others have that dopamine hit. When we give somebody an answer to something, we're getting the dopamine hit. If we say, yeah, no worries, this is what you do, off you go, and you, they go, oh, thanks. You go, no worries, next. <laughs> I'm cool. You know, bring it on. I'm a problem solver. We're getting the dopamine hit. If we want other people to have the dopamine hit, we need to ask questions. We need to say, what outcome are you after? What thinking have you done? We need to push back on the thinking and help other people have insights. We need to quieten their brain by heading toward the solution, not focused on the problem. And we need to be able to ask them, what thinking are they doing? What thinking are we doing is one of the prerequisites for having an insight. An insight requires a number of things. One of them is a quiet, relaxed brain. One of them is being reflective. That means asking yourself or others, what thinking am I doing around this? How am I feeling around this? It's being reflective about the problem, not trying to solve the problem. The other thing we need to have is a reward state. So we need to actually be in a positive state to have insights. If you think about it, you're not in a threat state when you have insights usually. In fact, when you're in a threat state, that's where you can't find the car park at the last minute and you end up on a flipping freeway miles away from where you should be because you've been in a threat state. So we always need to try and stay calm and confident and think, I need to be able to have insights, I need a quiet brain. Fascinating thing about how to have that with others 
is that if you are, um, one of the key things they've found about having insights is that we usually have a burst of alpha brain waves just before the moment of insight at which there's the gamma waves which are connecting the entire brain. As we say, these are non-consciously occurring, these, these insights occur non-conscious, so we need to have a quieter brain in order to hear the weak connections that are going on in the non-conscious. One of the ways to create alpha brain waves is through creative visualization. So if you ask somebody to generate a picture of an outcome or tell some, if you say, what would it look like if you solved this? If this problem was no longer a problem, tell me what you'd see. If you are asking people that question, you are increasing alpha brain waves. You are increasing the likelihood of them having an insight and you're moving them toward reward and away from threat. So they're also more likely to have an insight. So one of the key things there is if somebody comes up to you with a dilemma and they want to say, oh, oh, I don't know how to solve this, quick, solve it for me. Every time we solve a problem for somebody, we need to recognise that we are training them not to think. A manager should be the facilitator of improved thinking, not the problem solver. That's a manager. A leader is a facilitator of improved thinking. So the first step is ask them what would great look like or what outcome are you after? What are you aiming for here? What would a great, um, what would success look like here? And then ask them and what thinking have they done so far around it? These are two of the key questions that help us push back the problem solving to the person who has the problem in the first place and also allows us to, um, or to give them an opportunity to do some thinking in a reward state and have an insight. All right, so the next thing I'd like to talk about is um, this concept of social motivators in terms of engaging others. When we want to influence others or engage others, we need to understand that a lot of stuff about how we influence goes on non-consciously about whether we want to deal with somebody or not deal with someone. Would you agree? And some of the social motivators or the key social motivators that neuroscientists have found to throw us into threat or reward state faster than anything else include things like autonomy, certainty, connection, equality, status, and safety. So we just summarize those as access the social motivators. So I'm gonna go through them and describe them to you, and I want you to rate them for yourself one to six. Which order would you put your social motivators? And then I'm gonna get you to have a chat with the person next to you and see if your order of social motivators are different. So let's take autonomy for, for the first one. If you like to be very autonomous, do your own thing, do it your way, not have a manager, for example, hate being micromanaged. Now, I know most of you in this room would be highly autonomous, let's just say. But let's say, how important is that? Does it really drive you into threat if somebody then says, how are you going with this, etc.? Or do you not mind the connection or the extra bit of certainty? But if you're very autonomous, then you would rate that as, you know, number one or two or three. Now, in terms of autonomy, if you're talking to a staff member or, or somebody else that you're dealing with, it could be even a client or what have you, it's really important to give them autonomy. You may need them to do this, but give them some choice. Wherever you can give choice, you are raising autonomy. Anytime you give choice. So if you need someone to do something before three o'clock, but then you say, I don't mind if you do it this way or that way, you're giving some choice. Or if you need somebody to... Um, um, let's say, complete something in a certain way, think to yourself, 
how can I give them some choice around that rather than being so prescriptive? Where is the choice offering so that there is a sense of autonomy? So first of all, rate yourself one to six, where does autonomy land? The second one is certainty. Certainty, the brain is a prediction machine. We like to know what's going on, what's coming next, what's coming next, what's coming next. When we don't know who we're reporting to or which way the business is going or what the economy is doing and the market's doing and uh, where our next piece of um, where our next lot of clients are coming from or what time somebody's going to be home for dinner or what time we're meeting someone or where we're going or what have you. Certainty is one of these things that some people have a high degree of requirement for certainty and other people go, I don't care, whatever's happening. If it change, changes as good as a holiday, whatever. Don't need to know when, how you're doing all these things. Don't really need a lot of certainty, no problem. So where do you rate on certainty? So if, if I was to meet this lady here next Friday night for a drink, Let's say you and I are arranging for, to meet for a drink. If I was high on certainty, what would I be sending, sending to you between now and next Friday in emails? What would I be asking or, or saying, do you think? The time, location, are you bringing anyone else? Dress code, what are you wearing? Are you wearing a skirt? Are you wearing jeans? Yeah. So all of that is around certainty, right? Whereas somebody with low certainty would just email back and go, why don't we just talk 5.30 Friday night? You know, like, let's work it out then. So where do you sit on certainty? Is it a high priority or a low? And then the next one we've got is connection. Some of us come in on a Monday morning and go, oh, good morning. How are you? How was your weekend? Did you have a nice time? Blah, blah, blah. And then, oh, listen, you know that client we were talking about on Thursday? I just wanted to update you. Other people come in on Monday morning and go, oh, g'day. Hey, you know that client we were talking about on Thursday? Just wanted to update you. Not a lot of need or requirement for connection. Connection being the whole person, not just the report that I need or the marketing information or the whatever it is. So where do you rate on connection? Now, just because you rate connection, if you like, low, it doesn't mean you don't enjoy beers on a Friday or a Saturday night. It just means you don't want to talk about them on Monday morning, for example. And you don't want to, you know, com communicate with that person holistically about who they are and everything because you don't necessarily need somebody to ask you about your weekend. That's a low connection. But someone who's high connection wants to have that chat, wants to connect with you holistically before talking about the client. Um, so we've got autonomy, certainty and connection. So you've got to be thinking where do I rate them? In what order would I put those? The next one is equality. Some people in their brain really focus on equality. That's not fair. You can't do that. That's my team. You've taken that away. You've taken halved my territory, but you've doubled my budgets. That's not fair. Um, or gay rights. That's not fair. They should. I should. Or we should be able to marry, etc. That's not fair. Other people say, "Look, all's fair in love and war. Get over it. Move on. Giddy up." Some people are not focused on fairness and quality as a driver. It doesn't drive them. They think the world isn't fair, so that's how it is. Other people say, "No, we should thrive and strive." For fairness, all the time, where do you rate equality and fairness in these rankings? The next one is status. Some people like to have feedback. Hey, that's a lovely dress, love your earrings, awesome work on that project, fantastic win with that client, nice analysis with those numbers, excellent presentation. I'm giving you all a status boost. You all even had it, even though you know I'm faking it. But go for it. I'll give you a dopamine hit for free. Yeah. So. So the good thing is some of us need that recognition and that boost. Others say, I don't really need that feedback. I judge myself. I know if I've done a good job. I don't need someone giving me accolades. Interesting thing there is that we need to notice that we are very different. Some of us need that boost. Some of us want to compare ourselves to ourselves or compare ourselves to others. 
we might say, oh, the Joneses have a big balcony, we need a big balcony. Or, you know, I don't want to rock up at a, at a party in last year's dress because that will make me feel less than rather than higher than. So some of us rate ourselves compared to others. Some of us rate ourselves compared to ourselves. Listen, this time I'm going to swim. I'm going to swim this lap in 41 seconds, not, not 43. Two weeks ago it was 43. 41 seconds, yes, that's a status boost. Okay, so that is all about measuring. Measuring and getting recognition for achievement or progress. So some of us need that. Some of us like that status boost. Not a bad thing. Some of us don't need it. It doesn't matter. Don't care where I am. Don't compare myself to myself. Don't even compare myself to others. Doesn't matter. I'm just me. And then the final one is safety. Some of us feel really comfortable amongst others. We meet them. We go, hi, how are you? I'll tell you my whole life story. Anyway, blah, 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 blah. And then I did this. And then my personal life. And, blah, 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 blah. and other people are going, whoa, too much information. I wouldn't tell you that even if I did know you in three months really well. You know? So safety is one of these ones where... If you have high safety requirements, it means I'd like to get to know you quite well before I share my fears, my vulnerabilities, my personal experiences with you. If you have low safety requirements, it means you're pretty comfortable with anybody. You meet them straight away and you go, I trust you. Anything you ask me, I will tell you. I am very, very comfortable all the time with anybody. Trust everybody, share my vulnerability, no problem. Low safety requirements. So you've got the six now. It's autonomy, certainty, connection, equality, and fairness. Safe status and safety. We're all different. And if we go through life trying to influence people with our social motivators, we're only going to be influencing a very small portion of the population. If we think about all six of them in every engagement that we're dealing with people, and we also take a little bit more focus on the ones that we are lower, that we have lower priority for, we will do a much better job of engaging people in a reward state by allowing for everybody's different social motivators. This can make a huge difference in the workplace. It can make a huge difference just how you communicate things because you might communicate them from a certainty perspective, but not an autonomy perspective, or from a connection perspective, but not an equality perspective, because that's where you're how you're driven. So just being mindful of that can make a, a quite helpful um, differentiation in terms of you being able to get the best out of your relationships with others. The last thing I wanted to touch on is this concept of neuroplasticity. Anybody heard of that or watched Todd Sampson's Rewire Your Brain? So <clears throat> fascinating that neuroscience has now discovered that the brain is highly changeable. And it's called neuroplasticity because it comes from the Latin root word, again, from plasticina. You know, how do we change the mold, the plasticine? It's just like that for the brain. Um, neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to change itself. And self-directed neuroplasticity is the brain, the brain for your ability to rewire your own brain. As those of you who saw Todd Sampson on Rewire Your Brain, you can practically rewire your brain to do anything or be anyone in a very short space of time. He was able to become a memory champion in six weeks. He was able to become you know, somebody who could get themselves from out underneath the water, three metres deep with chains around him, whatever, you know, a, an escape artist within six weeks. He was able to, does anyone else remember something else he was able to do in six weeks? Fascinating stuff. 
If you want to have a look at the best of neuroplasticity, then he does an exemplary job at just showing how incredible the brain is. We use this every day in the workplace. We use some of the key principles of neuroplasticity for managers and leaders to help others change their brain. Neuroplasticity is not complex. It only requires understanding Hebb's law and a couple of other principles. Hebb's law is cells that fire together, wire together. So we need to, as the gentleman at brought up at the first place, how will we know to blah when we're in a threat state? You won't, you'll hear it today and you'll go, oh, that was interesting. And next time you need to blah, it will be the furthest thing from your mind, unless we create a habit. The habits are created through two very simple ingredients, attention and positive feedback. Not rocket science. We need the quality and quantity of attention. It's called attention density for cell connections, neurons, to form stronger connections together. And we need positive feedback to allow the dopamine hit to occur at the moment when we're trying to form a new habit. So if this gentleman was to do blah on the lift on the way down, for example, if he were to then say, well done me, I just did my first blah, he is more likely to do another blah. Does that make sense? It sounds simple, but if he, just, if he just does blah and there's no positive feedback, there's no intention for his brain to come back for more and do that again. We've got to feed our brain dopamine hits ourselves and that's how we can form habits. Plus, if we're helping others form habits, we need to do the same for them. If somebody says, for example, oh, my staff member always comes late and we have so many reasons people need to be in at 8.30, and I, well, what did you say? Oh, I had a conversation with him and yep, sure enough, it was a Wednesday. He came in right time on the Thursday and Friday, but people don't change. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, he was late again, stuffed us all around, 8.45, 9 o'clock, 9.15. And I said to him, what did you say to the gentleman when he did come on time on the Thursday and Friday? Nothing. I'm not going to throw a party for someone coming to work on time. Now, that's a very common thought process we have, right? but you are not throwing a party for someone coming to work on time. You are throwing a party because you are helping someone rewire their brain and form a new high performance habit. And if you are not prepared to give them the small incremental feedback pieces, then they will not form that habit. So we need to be very mindful if we want to change ourselves or others from a neuroplasticity perspective, our summary model is mind the gap. A, be very mindful of what you want to change. B, G stands for pick a goal. Pick a decision around what you want to do differently, how you want to behave differently, and then pay plenty of attention and positive feedback to that in a very short space of time, and that will form a habit. And it works. Anything. We can achieve anything we want. What we haven't touched on as much as we would, I would have loved to is how to really set goals to achieve them, how to do proper coaching, how to be able to give feedback. There's so many different things in this space um, of neuroscience, of leadership that help us get the best out of ourselves and others. But obviously in a short space of time, I've tried to ram as much little bit pieces of content um, in uh, as possible. I'm going to now just uh, op open out to some questions if any of you have questions about um, the sorts of things that uh, you want to find out more about the brain or how we work or how we develop teams or how we develop individuals or um, anything else that's of interest to you, then I'm just going to stop talking now and open it up to you guys to uh, have an interaction. Thank you. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. 
For more information on Florence Guild, visit florenceguild.com.